Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track today. This is episode number 69, which is an interview with Brian Brandt, the founder and president of Mode Records. Now, as I've occasionally had to disclaim, we will sometimes run into problems with Skype, and this particular episode is one of those times. We had some unresolvable technical glitches to deal with, and as a result, the audio quality of the interview you're about to hear is not up to our usual standards. But under the circumstances, it's pretty much the best we could manage. So thanks for bearing with us. And now here's Kirk. This week on The Next Track, we're very happy to welcome Brian Brandt, who is the founder of Mode Records in New York. Brian, hi. Hi. Brian, I'm glad we've been able to talk. I've been a fan of your record label for a long time. You founded Mode Records in 1984. And you did this with a very specific purpose. Can you tell our listeners why you created a record label? Well, I was a very big record collector. And uh, when I started to collect uh, any band or later this evolved into listening to uh, contemporary classical music, so I started to collect different composers. I always wanted to have um, everything I could. So um, at that time, 1983, 1984, uh, I went to a lot of concerts in, in New York City and also, interestingly, so did Cage. So we would see each other at these concerts all the time, and we started to recognize each other. And finally, <clears throat> one day, um, it was uh, intermission at, uh, if I recall correctly, Alice Tully Hall, and uh, Cage was sitting there by himself, and I mustered up guts to go over and speak to him. And I asked him if anything new was coming out. And he told me that actually uh, there were these recent pieces of his that were being played uh, very beautifully, but uh, no one seemed interested to record them. And I don't know what came over me, but I said, well, maybe I could do it. He said, oh, that would be marvelous. And he just gave me his phone number, just like that. And you had never been involved in recording or releasing records before at all. No, but I, I really uh, had um, a sense of how I like things to sound from listening to so many records. And um, I also had a sense of how I like things to, to look, you know, and that, like the record should have proper liner notes and this, that, and the other thing. And um, <clears throat> I was also dealing at that time, even though I was uh, in the design production graphics field, uh, I had a side business of uh, mail order records, where I specialized in photo audio file records and imported records that I sold through the mail. So I, had, I already uh, knew distributors. So you were like a sort of musical heritage society? Well, not really. I mean, I didn't, I didn't make any records, and I didn't license them. I see. But I, I was selling records through the mail, uh, records that were hard to find, but Back in the pre-internet days when it was very hard to find records. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember occasionally going to Sam Goody's, was it on 42nd Street, on 5th Avenue around there, mm -hmm. looking for some of the more obscure records and never finding anything. So back then you would only find something if you had a magazine that had ads from someone, I guess like you, who was selling. I imagine you were, were you importing records from Europe, some of the more obscure labels that weren't getting U.S. distribution at the yes. time? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't import them directly, but I, for the most part, but I, I got them through uh, distribution channels here. They were imported. Right. 
and you know, this could even just be like EMI pressings, British and German pressings of things that sometimes that were released here, but the British and German versions sounded better. Yes, we always thought back then that it was the German pressings of Deutsche Grammophon that sounded better. Maybe it was thicker vinyl or something. Was that really true? Oh yeah, yeah definitely. Um, it's it's because you know it's different lacquers and um, and and different uh, cutting engineers usually from one country to the next. And also the the vinyl could be different too, the quality. So some records sounded better, yeah. The same record from a different country would sound different. So you approached John Cage initially just to release a couple of records of his recordings, but you decided to turn that into a lifelong project. Well, initially I had no plan whatsoever. And uh, we put the first record out. Uh, for that one, Cage also offered to do the cover. So he made a, um, uh, what he called these rock drawings, pencil drawings, uh, uh, specifically for that record. And then when, when the records came in, I remember uh, we, we uh, went over to Cage's apartment. <clears throat> Merce Cunningham was there too. And he was so delighted with, with this, uh, this uh, double LP that on the spot he, he offered to sign and number a series so that I could sell them for more money and, and make some money back. <laughs> but this is the kind of uh, person that Cage was. So he did that. He, he was a very generous man, yeah. Yes, very generous man. And, okay, so, I mean, I put that out. Uh, there was a distributor that I bought foreign pressings from called German News in, in New York, and they offered to take on distribution in, in North America for the record. And I had no plan of what was to come next, but Cage kind of took care of that for me because several months later I received a phone call. There he was on the other end, and he says, you know, hi, Brian, it's, it's John. I have another record for you if you want it. And that, that's how the second record came out. And this was a four-LP set. So the first one was a two-LP set. The second one was a four-LP box set. And I had these made in Germany both of them because the German pressings were superior. And uh, then after that, he just kind of stayed in contact with me and he would suggest uh, that I meet different musicians when they passed through town that he thought were uh, uh, really appropriate for certain pieces of his. And it kind of grew out from there. And then he also introduced me to other composers, I would think. So this first recording is Etude Boreal and Rio NG, and the second one is Atlas Ellipticalis with Winter Music. I think that must be the one that I was just listening to the other day on Apple Music. We'll talk about streaming music in a little bit, but Brian and I had a chat on Friday, and afterwards I was looking on Apple Music to see which recordings was there, and Atlas Ellipticalis is a piece I've always liked, so I listened to that. There were, there were two versions on it. It's a three CD set. You said it was four LPs originally, right? Yes, and actually when the, when the CD set came out, we added more material. So uh, originally um, there were two performances that Cage did of, of the piece uh, in uh, Washington with the uh, new performance group, but this was not a very large ensemble. Uh, and then we also recorded uh, Atlas Ecliptocalis with full orchestra, so all, all the parts were present. We did this at a festival in, in uh, 
at Wesleyan University. <clears throat> and then uh, Stephen Drury did uh, winter music uh, for 20 pianos, the full version. So we added these things onto the uh, CD. Yeah, this is the one I was listening to the other day. I'm just looking on Apple Music on my other computer. It's fascinating stuff. So you've sort of decided you want to publish everything that Cage has composed on your label. Yeah, that kind of came about later because, um, you know, as the, as the label continued on through the years, there was more and more Cage being done. Um, we're up to uh, 51 volumes now, and there'll be more next year. And, uh, you know, Cage was a, a real um, influence on my life in, in many ways, not not just the fact that because of him I got into this record business, but also uh, in a personal way because he was a very unique uh, personality and uh, he could really, you know, kind of in some ways change your life. So, you know, we worked together until he passed away and in 1992, and then uh, I kind of felt sometime after that that uh, felt a responsibility to try to get everything on one label. Also because, uh, you know, from working with Cage, uh, I came to really understand what he liked about certain performances and what he didn't like about other performances. So it's, it's really very easy to to make a bad performance of a cage piece. And for the for the general public, they may hear this bad perform- performance but not know it's a bad performance. And then they don't like the music. Well, there may be other reasons they don't like the music to start with. Cage is, is a love-hate type thing. A lot of people won't like it. But it's true that, that a, a poorly performed concert will not give people a good impression of the music. Exactly. And Cage's music is, is the kind that often the performance can be very different from one performance to another. So there really is a lot of input from the musicians as to how the, the piece finally sounds. Yes. And and it's odd that you could kind of tell uh, whether they're, they're approaching it correctly or not, even though it can be very different from some other performance of the same piece that you've heard. Um, but this only came from uh, experience from working with him. And... This is another reason why I, I'm trying to do this uh, complete edition because at least I, I I feel confident enough that the performances that I'm putting out are reliable performances that Cage would have approved. Of. Yeah. So 51 volumes so far. How many volumes would there be? I know Cage was extremely prolific, especially in his later years when he was composing what he called the number pieces. Yeah. I, I don't know how many volumes it would be, and I never actually sat down to uh, calculate that. Uh, and also, over the years, some pieces now on mode have been recorded more than once, so this also throws the whole volume thing out the window. Like, for example, we, we have two complete releases of the Sonatas and Interludes for prepared piano. So uh, I only hope that I eventually can reach this goal of recording everything. Before you retire. I don't think I can ever retire. (laughs) (laughs) Only life will retire me. (laughs) (laughs) So in in addition to John Cage, you you released recordings of one of my favorite composers, Morton Feldman. You've notably got a recording of his second string quartet. This is one of the longest pieces of classical music at, what is it, just under six, it's just over six hours on your recording. 
if it's done with the right amount of repeats that are in the score and at the right tempo. Right. And it's not that there aren't other longer pieces of music. Tati's Vexations would take um, 18 hours to perform entirely. Um, I think Sarabji also yeah. has some monumentally long pieces. Yeah. But this seems to be, outside of opera, the longest piece of music that I've ever encountered as, as such. How did you... It must have been a big challenge to release something like this on five CDs, a, a piece of music that's so long. W was it very difficult to get the recording to, to be able to release this? Well, the Flux Quartet were performing the piece uh, at the time, and uh, I had met Tom Chu, who's the leader of the Flux Quartet, and we had the idea to record it. So my memory may not be 100% correct here, but if I recall, we made a, an arrangement with, uh, again, Wesleyan University, that they would do a concert uh, there. And then Wesleyan, in turn, allowed us to use their concert hall for the recording, which we did over a period of three nights, because it's quietest night. And it, also, if I recall correctly, we lost almost all, all of the entire first night because of some technical problems. So this was really quite an endeavor to, to record. You were using Skype and FaceTime, weren't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's similar to what we've been going through today. Yeah. So uh, so did, did they perform the entire quartet each night? No. No, we mapped it out and, and we went through it. But uh, I know some, some uh, recordings of Feldman's music, people uh, cheat a little or sometimes out of necessity they have to cheat a little by duplicating some of the repeats and so on. Uh, but I can tell you that I, in, in my recollection, we did not do that. And we just managed to finish the recording in, in time because some of the members had uh, travel plans that they had to get to on the last morning of the last day. And I'm very ple pleased to say that uh, this, this record still continues to sell even in this uh, kind of you know, depressed market. And I think it's a beautiful recording. It is an extraordinary recording, and, and all of the Fox Quartet's recordings are extraordinary. And, and kudos to them for, you know, they, they have performed this in concert. It's an extremely taxing piece of music to perform. A few weeks ago, we had Andrew Lee on the show, who's recorded some very long works, including Dennis Johnson's November, that's five hours long. Right. And it's not easy to play something, even to play something that's two hours long. But when you get up to the, you know, double marathon length, it must be extremely taxing. Yes. Yeah. And they've done it countless times. In fact, I've sat through them um, uh, in concert uh, three or four times between the recording and the concerts, a good chunk of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is a fascinating piece. It's, it's one of my favorite um, Feldman pieces, yeah. but there are many, many others that you have. So you were kind of mentioning that this still sells in spite of the way the record business has changed. You've been uh, fairly outspoken about your feelings of the record business. How much has it changed since 1984 when you founded Mode Records, and, and how are you managing to negotiate these changes? Well, I guess the thing that really uh, upsets me most is that the the income from the business is so diminished now. And um, from the early days up until about 2008 or so, most years, 
there was always some growth to mode records. So even in the few years where there were some kinds of downturns, there was, there was uh, some depression in the music industry in the mid-90s, as I recall, um, you could always kind of see, well, if you, if you plan properly and you put out some strong releases during this, this depressed period, there'd be light at the end of the tunnel and you'd come out okay at the other. Uh, and it worked. So uh, what what's happened since 2008? First, uh, I guess the the economic meltdown, uh, you know, which happened then, maybe changed people's uh, buying habits a bit because you know buying music is a luxury item, and and also you know you had uh, Napster starting up then and and all these uh, illegal digital downloads and, and so on, which did have an impact on, on uh, sales. And the, the record industry kind of handled all that very poorly, but that's that's a whole other other story. But what's what's happened since then now is the whole market has changed. So you have um, much less sales of physical product, and uh, even now uh, download sales are also on a big decline. So uh, I think the, the the record industry, and by by this I mean more the major labels, they kind of looked at this whole digital re- revolution as a, like a panacea for them. They, they thought, well, here's a way to make money easier without having to uh, have all these warehouses and people to ship records and, and so on and so forth. It will just you know make money out of the air. From these. I can say at least for for mode records and for a lot of indie labels that I've spoken to, the digital sales never got to the point where they offset or got greater than the previous physical sales. So immediately, the physical sales were going down and the digital sales never quite made up. And now we have kind of a a new cycle of of this uh, situation where the digital sales are also uh, going down in terms of income. Streaming doesn't pay anything. And I think an independent classical label or jazz label or something like that, anything that's not pop or or popular music, there's not a hope in hell that that you can make a sustainable income out of streaming sales. You just can't sell it. One of the reasons is that classical uh, works or avant-garde works, which is what you release, they're often much longer tracks. So while Taylor Swift will get however much she gets for a four-minute song, you'll get the same amount for a 20-minute piece of music or a 20-minute movement of a symphony or whatever. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting point because, you know, in the, in, in the, the early download days, and, you know, the download business, I, I have to say, uh, again, this was not necessarily a bad business because the downloads paid well enough. And when you submitted your records uh, for, for the download services, iTunes and whatever, you were able to select uh, whether a piece could be available as a track download or an album-only download. And the reason this was... was Typically, if a piece was more than 10 minutes long, they were not available as a track. You had to buy the entire album, and this is only logical. 
especially if, you know if you get into you know symphonies or something like that. Yeah, well, you may have four tracks on a CD instead of ten. Yeah, and and for example, you know, I have some pieces, um, including like an orchestra piece of Cage, one o one o eight, which is about an hour. And, and uh, Well, Atlas Ellipticalis is one hour, 19 minutes, and 57 seconds. Yes, and these these two examples are not split up with any track markers on CD. Right. So if you stream that piece, for example, I get about 0. 0.006 of a cent for your one-hour stream, right? And I would get 0. 0.006 of a cent if you streamed a 30-second piece of music. So yeah. even these kinds of uh, safeguards that they built into the early digital days, these have gone out the window with streaming. And this is really a, a problem because what happens is, you know, your, your income really is kind of uh, decimated. And it makes it, makes it difficult to, to make new recordings. Yeah, and, and the, the streaming companies have negotiated with the major labels who are more than happy to accept this as a simplified way of doing the accounting. Yeah. It would seem to me that it would make sense that, let's say, you've got a certain amount of money up to 10 minutes and then another twice that for a piece that's up to 20 minutes and so on, because you can have long classical works. On, on the other hand, I'm looking at, so I have your recording of Feldman's Second String Quartet, which I've ripped from CD and put into my iTunes library. It, it makes, but it's broken up. It's broken up into 29 tracks. Yeah. Um, but some of them are 20, 22 minutes long. So if someone listens to this entire recording, you'll get a sixth of a cent times 29. But imagine if you had broken up into 100 tracks, not that people were going to go crazy listening to Feldman's Second String Quartet, but it would make a difference. Yeah. Now, I have noticed that there are some classical labels who are starting to do that more and more. It's, not, it's rarely the major labels, it's mostly the smaller ones, but when they have long works, they are cutting them up like that into, you know, they're trying to put at least 10 tracks on the equivalent of a CD. Yeah. So 10 tracks an hour. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you know, some of it is, is just kind of uh, logical for ease of navigation, but now, you know, you also have to think about it in terms of money, which uh, yes, which I didn't think which before. is Which is a shame, because, uh, again, for Atlas Ellipticalis, I don't know the score of, of any of these works, but is there a logical way to split it up? There might be, there might not be. For the Feldman, you have them labeled like pages one to four, pages five to nine, and so on. So it corresponds with the pages and the score, right. which I, as a listener, don't really care what pages they are. Maybe there are some musicians who would look at it that way. But you can't be bothered to have to worry about that in order to make a living selling your recordings. It's just, it, it seems a bit ridiculous that the system is such that it's, it's excluding, and it's not only excluding classical music, it, it's excluding a lot of improvised music. A, a lot of jazz recordings have pieces that are 10 or 20 minutes long. Yes. And these people also, they're already a niche market, and then they're getting snookered a bit by the fact that they're getting less. Right. On the other hand, with the Feldman piece, you probably have to pay 29 times the publishing rights because it's 29 tracks, whereas with the Cage piece, when it's a single track, you're only paying once, right? No, the, the publishing is just for the pieces. Oh, okay. It, it, it doesn't matter how you... How you okay, it. well, that's, that's a relief. Yeah, but um, there's kind of an interesting uh, historical perspective about all this. You know, when the CD was introduced, this is just a whole change of mindset. 
when the CD was in- introduced, um, do you know why the maximum length of the CD is about 70 minutes? Do you remember why it was chosen? Because of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, there was a version exactly. that was, I think, 74 minutes. And someone at Sony or someplace wanted it to be that length. But since then, as you know, CDs can be longer, about 80 minutes now. Right. And so, and some even longer, but they don't play on all players. Yeah. But the model, interestingly enough, the reason the CD could hold a certain amount of capacity was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Right. A classical music model. A piece of classical music, yeah. Now you 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 have people in charge of things, uh, which is not to say they're not intelligent or whatever, but you have people in charge of things that don't even think about classical music. It's completely off of their radar. So they, they would they would never sit around and say, uh, oh, what do, what do we do about the, the payments on this Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? They're, they're thinking about little little pieces of, you know, pop or, or hip-hop songs, yeah? Taylor Swift songs. And that, that's, that's all that occurs to them. So all this other lengthy stuff is, it's not even thought of. And this is how another way the world has, has kind of changed. And I think also you have a lot of people in the record business now, and also my, my strong guess is like the, the people that run some of these streaming services, too, um, that they, they're not really music lovers, these people. They're, they're business people. They could be selling shoes. It's the same thing. You know? um, they're, they're just worried about their next quarter quarterly projection. And, and so the whole music business suffers. And in particular, the small indie labels and, and people in niche markets like you. Yeah. You're selling music that, by definition, is not easy music. It's not something that everyone wants to listen to. What ways can you see of getting more people to discover your music now? If streaming isn't going to pay for your future recordings, I, I don't want to sound negative, but we, we were talking the other day and I was trying to find that expression, tilting at windmills. What do you see the future holding? Hey, you know, I, I, I really can't project this. Anymore. For the longest time, I kept thinking, I tried to keep thinking um, in a more positive uh, way that something's going to turn around a little bit and, and so on. But, I mean, to be honest now, this, is, this depression, income depression, has been going on for so long and is actually, in some ways, getting worse and not better uh, from year to year. That I, I don't I don't know what to predict is going to happen, and I know it's not just uh, me. I, I speak to other labels. No, it's not. It's there's a lot of indie labels that are going through the same thing, and particularly on the, the classical music yeah. side. So, you know, if, if you're a smart business person, you would you would get out of this business and go into selling shoes <laughs> and sell shoes. Yeah, because people always <laughs> always need, need shoes. shoes, right? Yeah, <laughs> people always need music too, but they they realize it. And, and somehow it, it, it seems a much less uh, valued commodity than shoes. So what, what's coming up next? I believe you're up to 292 releases, according to your website. 300, actually. The website is, is uh, sadly behind uh, updating, uh, also due to economics. I'm sorry to report. So there's, there's um, almost a year's worth of releases that are not on there. This is not a, not a good thing, I know, but uh, I'm trying to remedy. But uh, we have uh, in, in 
uh, in, in production now, uh, number 300. And w what is that recording? This is, uh, oddly enough, uh, Mode's first uh, all Steve Reich CD. Oh, good. I'm a big Steve Reich fan. Which pieces? It's uh, Sextet and Double Sextet. And performed by? Uh, it's a Danish group called uh, Echo Zone. It's uh, led by percussionist Matthias Wing. And when is this going, going to be released? It's, it's in production. It'll either come out late this year or early next year. And so you're planning to, uh, because on your homepage you list that you have special composer editions, Zinnikis, Cage, Feldman, Skelsey, and Wolf. Are you planning to add Steve Reich to that um, roster? Uh, no, I don't think so, because I think Reich is very well taken care of. Yeah, he's, he is well recorded. Um, there are a lot of um, recordings of Steve Reich's work, in, in particularly in the past 10 or 15 years. He's become sort of mainstream. Yeah, in a, in a good way. Yes, yeah. I, I think it's great that this sort of music is getting mainstream now. But every once in a while you get a Cage Festival or you get something around Feldman, but they're not quite the same mainstream. And and it's a shame. And, and I'll, I would certainly say that a lot of Cage's music is more difficult. A lot of Feldman's music is probably more approachable. But I think it's just this is the way the world is. There's just not people curious enough about this kind of music to keep it alive other than through specialists and musicians and musicologists and all that. Yeah, but I think also now with the, with this real ease of digital listening, people are listening to a lot of this type of thing. I mean, whether they're really concentrated listening or not, um, this is another story. I mean, they but they they might have it on in the background and they could say, okay, now I've, I've heard this piece of Feldman and... I can move on from that just because they're curious. But like, for example, um, recently my digital uh, statements are, are kind of about the same uh, income every, every month. And they're uh, taken care of by worldwide for me by, by one distributor. So, you know, I happen to really look at the, these, this uh, statement a month or two ago, and um, it's like 70-something pages long. And <clears throat> it shows you all the different countries uh, that, that things have uh, been downloaded or streamed from, you know, really remarkable amount of places, you know, countries in, in Africa, you know, Vietnam, all over the place, listening to this music that I put out. And you, you get all the way down to the last page, and there was over 155,000 digital sales that month. This is really incredible because, I mean, to me, I'm, I don't think I've even maybe sold 155,000 CDs in the entire time the, the Moten Records has existed. And this is one month of digital sales, but the, the, the point of the matter is this equals about $1,200. Which isn't even enough to pay your rent. It's not even enough to put a new CD out. Just the production costs. Or pay my rent. Yeah. And and uh, I would only have to sell something like 80 CDs to make that same amount of money at wholesale cost. So if anything, more people are listening to your music around the world with greater reach than you've ever had before, yet you don't get enough for it. No. And, you know, you, you don't go into this kind of business expecting to get richer. But um, for all those years, from 1984 to 2008 or so, it worked. You know, there was there was cash flow happening. This cash flow has been really disrupted. 
and this this is this is a reason why I don't know if I'll actually finish my cage project or even put out uh, um, as many records a year as I used. Have you thought about digital only releases? Yes, and, and you know I'll I'll, I'll continue making uh, physical product for as long as it makes sense to do so. And already, one question sense of it. But I mean, for me, I, I'm I'm kind of you know still an old school collector, and and I like to have the thing in my hand. Somehow, you know, working on these these projects, you know, and even you still have to design the kind of cover for a digital only sale anyway, and all that. It doesn't really interest me to do that, um, but I'm old school. You're old school in a good way. You're keeping the the the, the flame going here. I hope. So. Brian Brandt, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Links in the show notes to the Mode Records website, and good luck. I hope some of our listeners will buy some of your records after hearing this. Well, buying buying the records or, or at least buying a download. This is the way to keep the music alive. And so if if you if you love the music and you love certain labels, you have to support them. Exactly. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. It is time now to present our next tracks. Kirk. This week, my next track has to be the best f***ing new album I have heard in years. I have a son who's 26, and every once in a while he turns me on to a new artist or a new record, and most of the time I like what he shares with me, but not enough to really put it into rotation. The last time he sent me a record that I really, really loved was Dark Side's album Psychic. I'll put a link in the show notes. We interviewed Dave Harrington a couple months ago. He's one of the two members of Dark Side. So today's record is absolutely one of these things that I've listened to twice this morning, and I'm going to be listening to this for a while. It's, it's the new album by LCD Sound System called American Dream. Now, I'd heard some of their music in the past, and I liked a few songs, but I didn't like entire albums. And I saw that, that retirement concert documentary from Madison Square Garden, which was a bit self-absorbed with all the interviews. And so the, the, the band, which is basically James Murphy and a couple of additional musicians, they retired in 2011, but apparently David Bowie, before dying, said he should get back together, and he did. And this is an album that in some ways is nostalgic because you can hear all these influences of post-punk music and 80s music and, 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 and I'm hearing orchestral maneuvers in the dark and, and talking heads or King Crimson's Discipline or U2 or Gang of Four and, and all this sort of late 70s, early 80s music. And this sounds like it might be a nostalgic type of album when I say that, but it's not. He he modernizes all these sounds with some really sort of funky lyrics. And, and if you're not familiar with these older bands, you won't recognize these influences. But if you are, you'll see these as echoes, as, as sort of homages to this music that he obviously likes, that he's modernizing. And, and in many ways, this is a very modern album, but it's kind of looking back to the past. In any case, I just love this album, and I think I'm going to be playing this for a long, long time. Doug, what about you? I'm pulling an album out of quarantine this week. It's the debut album from The Knack called Get The Knack from 1979. This is the band that did My Sharona, and this is the album that that song is from. This is one of the best-selling albums of 1979, but that song, I'm totally burned on it, and, and that's why I've avoided the album for, I'm going to say, easily 15 years. My Sharona is not the first song on the album. It was the first song on side two 
I happened to hear the first song called Let Me Out on Pandora the other day. And that song took me right back to a cassette deck in a buddy's car during the summer of 79. We played that cassette a lot, as I recall. And, of course, the first song is this charging, I'm free, let's go cruising tonight, pick up our friends, go party kind of song. In fact, every song on this album, while not great, was played and recorded really well. I mean, they're very simple pop rock songs, but every so often there's, there'll be a neat syncopation thing or some interesting harmony or guitar solo or bass line. Everything about this recording, as I recall, was very precise. Mike Chapman produced it, and he was famous mostly for producing The Suite in the UK, and he, I believe he had just produced Blondie's Parallel Lines. And at the time, a lot of people accused The Knack of being a little too Beatlesque with the black and white cover and the get the title. But they didn't sound anything like the Beatles. Um, they didn't even last as long as the Beatles. The Knack kind of flamed out after a poor second effort, and they've been battling over royalties from My Sharona ever since. Anyway, throw this one in the car when I cruise to the post office later today. The Knack, Get the Knack, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.